The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. to open with me to Matthew 4. And um, listen, how many of you like tests? I think the ones who are most familiar with the idea of tests are walking out the room right now. Um, How many good test takers? You're like, bring it. Some of you, you might not admit it, but some of you are. Um, Many of us, though, are not. Many of us are not. Um, What does it mean? To be tested. Um, To test something. We're going to come back to this throughout our morning. To test something means that we do something. We take measures to check the quality, the durability, the, you check the truthfulness of something. So you test it. Um, I think of this, uh, I don't know if you've been to Ikea, and I don't even know if this is here like right now. Um, but I thought immediately of the Ikea chair. Have, some of you are like, I don't know what he's showing here. But for the longest time in Ikea, there was this little plexiglass torture chamber looking thing with a, a, a sole chair, solo chair, with all day, hink, hink, weight, just bearing down on this thing all day, just over and over and over, just bearing down on it. Um, and you would see this, and, and why would they do this? What does it show? Well, what you're basically seeing is a virtual demonstration, a testing that you get to see so that when you buy this chair, you know that it will sit up and stand up after repeated times of sitting in it, right? Right? I didn't know we had to doubt that, but this chair made me doubt all other chairs, you know? Um, But you know that if you get this chair, it can stand up to being repeatedly smacked, repeatedly, like all day long if you wanted to, and it it would show that it would last. It was a test of durability, and they did it, so you can see it. I see it. It'll last, right? Um, That is a test. You know, maybe you don't think about Ikea like I did. Maybe you think of school. For many of us, that's what we think about with testing. Um, Here's the thing. If you had a good teacher, a good teacher does not give you a test to torture you or to trick you. If you had one of those, those are not good teachers. Um, Why does a teacher give you a test? Well, it's so that you can check that you know the material. It's so that you can prove not only to them, by the way, but when we take tests, we kind of prove to ourselves, like, I know this material, right? That's what tests do. They reveal the quality. They, they say that what you say is true is true, so you test it. That's what testing does. Um, some of you, just to, even before we get into this text, have been through seasons of life that feel like a test, that feel like a massive test that will never stop. I mean, have you been there? Maybe, um, if you think about it, it's one thing to talk a good game and to have all the answers, 
Like when other people are going through tough things where you can be like, boom, spout out all that they need to hear, right? That's one thing. It's another thing when you go through something. When you are walking through, when, when the talking the talk needs to now become walking the walk, it, it, it gets harder. Um, for anyone who has, has gone through a testing of your faith, you know what I mean? Maybe if you're honest, you're, you're in that. Like right now, you, you're in a season of testing. Um, I gotta tell you, if that's you, just before we even go any further, God is not doing this to torture you. Um, he's not bored and going, you know what would really pass the time? So if I could just throw out a test here and there and there. And, um, and, I, and I also want you to know something else too. The tests that we walk through are not for God to figure out if you're the genuineness of our faith. And what I mean by this is that when we're walking through trials, God's not up in heaven on the edge of his seat going, I wonder what's going to happen. Like, what are they going to do? Is their faith going to be genuine? You point to a scripture where, where that is an accurate, accurate portrayal of our God. It's not. It's not. Our God is sovereign. He knows our hearts. Church, these seasons of, of trials that we face, that we walk through, um, we test the genuineness of our own faith to, to grow in our own faith. We walk through these things. Um, testing helps us to check and to know the authenticity of our own faith. We better know ourselves. We grow in our faith. It's not in the mountaintop moments that we grow for most of us. It's the times when we go through things that are, that are hard because testing is powerful. And yet so often we shy away from it. Why? Well, for let's call it the obvious, testing is, is not fun. It's, it can be difficult. Uh, seasons of testing are not the most like, yeah, yeah, like moments in life, right? And they're, they're hard. Um, but there's something else. On the other hand, not only are they challenging, but they can also be scary. And what I mean by this is um, sometimes I think many of us would just prefer not knowing. Um, it's like going to the doctor or not going to the doctor. Uh, and for many, most of the time, I don't know what this is, but men, I'll just call this out, who just refuse to go to the doctor to get something checked because they just don't want to know. Ah, ignorance is bliss. Don't want to know. Don't want to deal with it right now. Um, why is that? Because there's a fear associated with testing. It's difficult. There's also a, a fear that we may not want to address. Um, I say all this to say, okay, so we're coming off of Matthew 3 in one of the pinnacle moments of Jesus's earthly life, his baptism. It's this beautiful moment where everything is awesome. Like the spirit rests on him and father's voice booms from heaven. This is my son. I'm so pleased, right? We have this moment. Everything is wonderful, amazing, magical, starting line of Jesus's public ministry like we talked about before. Um, but yet there's one more thing that has to happen. One more thing that has to happen before Jesus begins his ministry. One more thing before the Messiah steps into the public light. Do you know what that one thing is? It's testing. Um, there was a test that Jesus here is about to walk through before he steps into his public ministry. And we get to read this test, read about this test, see this test in Matthew 4. 
Uh, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, that's where we're gonna be. It's known as the section, you know, your header might say the temptation of Jesus. It might say the testing of Jesus. Um, but it's, it's a powerful verse, and, and we'll walk through it, but I wanna just pick out something before I even put it up here. Our verse begins with the word then. And um, it's important because when we look at this, it's important to know that this, this season of testing, this, this moment of temptation is Matthew is intentionally linking it back to that pinnacle moment in baptism. So we have mountaintop baptism, then. There's a link with the baptism and what is coming next. And so let's, let's read this. Verse one says, then, then Jesus was led up by the, the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I'll pause there because that is a really tough verse to swallow. You read this, and um, right after Jesus goes into the water, right after the Spirit rests on him, heaven's open, God's saying, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Right after this moment, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. Don't miss this. The same Spirit that rested on his head and the glorious mountaintop moment is now here leading him into the wilderness. Why? Well, the trip had a specific purpose. This was not a vacation that went wrong. There was a purpose for this. He was led into the wilderness for a specific purpose. Our text says to be tempted by the devil. So I want to call out something here. Um, and you may be able to relate to this. We're going to kind of pause here because I want to sit on this for a second. Um, I don't think there is any coincidence, church that this kind of testing comes right after Jesus' baptism. And, and I don't think there's any coincidence, in other words, that a valley comes right after a mountaintop. I don't know if you've been here, if you've walked through this before. Um, I read a statement this week that I want to put up here because I think it just nails it. So it says this, right after conversion or some other significant spiritual event, precisely when a certain level of Victory and maturity seems to be, have been attained. Temptations resume more strongly than ever. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Um, but I, I, I know that we're in Matthew today, and we're going to get to Matthew, okay? But I, I said I want to pause for just a second. Because um, this moment reminds me of another biblical example, and I think it's one of the, strong, the, the, the best biblical examples that we ever have to show how this is true. And so, hold your place in Matthew. Actually, you don't even need to turn with me. I'm going to put them all on the screen. We're going to walk through another scene, and we'll come right back to Matthew. And I want to I think about an example that comes to my mind of, of Elijah. Okay, um, 1 Kings 18, we read about this jaw-dropping moment in victory when Elijah boldly, courageously just takes on like a, a small army of uh, prophets of Baal. Just takes them on. Like boldly takes them on, so confident that God's gonna show up just basically taunting these prophets. Um, I'll read a little bit of it. So 1 Kings 18, this is in verse 21. Elijah came near uh, to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If, if the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, follow him. 
And the people didn't answer him. There's a problem. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. There's the small army of, of uh, bad guys, right? Um, and so what, he, what happens in this text is he proposes a challenge. And what he does, and what he does is he says, let's take two bulls. One for you, one for me. Let's take two bulls. Um, you guys take one, I'll take one. We're gonna lay it on some wood. We're gonna prepare the altar, but here's the thing, do not light it. You just prepare it, put the bull on it, don't light it. Instead, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take turns. You go first, you're gonna call on your God to go light that thing. Pray to him, let him light it, and then I'll do the same. And we're gonna let God light this fire. This is the challenge. And it was set, and here's the thing, the prophets of Baal, they're bold, I'll give them that. They take the first shift and they get started they pray for hours verse 26 says they took the bull that was given to them they prepared it called upon the name of Baal from morning till noon saying oh Baal answer us there's no voice no one answered and they limped around the altar that they had made it's not going well for him. Uh, um, and so what does Elijah do? This is my favorite verse in the whole thing. Um, Elijah in verse 27. So at noon, Elijah decides to mock them, saying, cry, cry louder, for he is a God. Either he is musing, maybe he's relieving himself. How insulting is this? Maybe he's on a journey, gone somewhere, like out of office. Maybe he's asleep and he just needs to... Snap out of it, Baal. Come back. Like, maybe that's it. I mean, this is a dig. It really is. And, and um, so what they do is they cry out all the more, and they cry out even more, like, boldly. Verse 28, they, they cry out, and they start to cut themselves, which was the custom, with swords and lances until blood gushed upon them. Like, they're going hard, right? And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But here's the thing. There was no voice and no one answered and no one paid attention. No one answered. Now it's Elijah's turn. So, um, well, let me rephrase it. Now it's God's turn. And um, here's the thing. I, I could break this up, but I just think I'm just going to read this next part. I'm just going to read it. I think it's better that way. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. Verse 32, and with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. I didn't do the research on the seas of seed thing. It's not the, not the point. Don't get caught up on that, all right? Verse 33, and he put wood under it, or he put the wood in order and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Here's the crazy thing. Then he says, fill four jars, not with uh, gasoline. They didn't have that then, but um, fill these four jars with water and pour it on this burnt offering, and on the wood. And then he says, let's do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he says, you know what? Let's do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar, filled the trench 
also with water. So just FYI, before we go to 36, um, when you want to light something on fire, you don't typically douse it with water, okay? Verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all the things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. Holy moly, right? And licked up the water that was on, all in the trench. It just, that's hot, hot, hot. Verse 39, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. They seized them. And Elijah brought them down the brook and slaughtered them there. Like, whoo, what a moment we have here. Talk about the height of boldness and courage. Like, God, you're going to show up, and he's bold, and he's courageous. Who can do what our God can do, right? Guess what, though? Right after this, guess what happens? Well, chapter 19 happens. Right after this, Ahab, verse 1, tells Jezebel, oh, Jezzy, that what Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Okay, you would think that bold Elijah would take this in stride and say, I know my God. I saw what he did. Trusting him for a miracle. He just showed up in such a mighty way. Elijah, you just stood in front of 450 of Baal's finest prophets. So how will Elijah respond? Well, verse 3, he was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life, tail tucked. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he caves, he runs, he hides, he cowers, he doesn't eat. He's fallen apart here. What on earth happened? Well, it's often after the mountain peaks that we descend into the valleys. Again, I'll put that quote up there right after the conversion or some other significant spiritual event. That's precisely the level when, uh, when victory, maturity has been attained. Temptations resume more strongly than ever. So often after the mountaintop, we face a moment of testing. A season that asks us one question, will you forget? Or will you remember? Will you forget? Or will you remember? Here in this moment, Jesus is asked the same question. He's asked the same question after the mountaintop moment of his baptism. He is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested. And this temptation came when Jesus was at his most vulnerable. We'll go back to Matthew now. I promised I would. Verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights, he was hungry. That's probably an understatement. Um, he was tired. He was hungry at the moment when maybe his guard would be down. Verse 3 says, the tempter came and said to him, 
All right, we have, we're given three distinct temptations. We're going to take them in order. Let's start with the first one. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the son of God. See, the tempter uses the same name given to Jesus at his baptism. Don't miss that. Son of God. He says, Jesus, if that's true, a better translation would be since that's true. The reason I say that, um, he's saying, since that's who you are, prove it. The enemy is not so much questioning who Jesus is. He knows who Jesus is. Um, What he's doing, he's not questioning who Jesus is. Instead, he's tempting Jesus to misuse who he is. That's what's going on here. Why would the son of God have to be hungry? (laughs) Come on, Jesus. If since you are the son of God, surely you can fix this, right? I mean, go ahead, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus here is being tempted to rely on his own self-provision instead of relying on God here in the wilderness. A commentator says it like this. Jesus often insisted he would do nothing of his own will. He came to do the Father's will only. This would have been a departure from the mission on which the Father had sent him. Jesus would have been exercising, listen to this, improper independence. That was the temptation, church. That was the test. Jesus, I know you're hungry, so exercise your own power for your own purpose and make some delicious bread right here. So what did Jesus do? How did he respond? Well, verse four, it says, he answered, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What does Jesus do? He responds with scripture. By the way, you're gonna notice a theme here today with that. Here, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, and it's such a perfect reference because here in Deuteronomy 8, Moses is commanding the people to trust God to provide when they're in the wilderness. And Jesus goes right there and and, and, and says the exact same thing, God will provide. So rather than me launch into some mission of self-provision here, rather than this, rather than saying, you know, I've got this, I can do it all on my own, what Jesus does is he entrusts himself to the will of the Father. I love that phrase. He refused to be improperly independent. And by the way, there's a reminder for us. I know you're not Jesus, right? Um, But wow, if there were ever a group of people who were tempted to be improperly independent, would it not be us, rugged, independent Americans? Would it not be us? Although Jesus had all the power as God, he submits himself to the will of the Father, lays himself, submits himself to the will of the Father and refuses to be improperly independent, knowing and trusting instead that God's going to provide. Here's what we need to understand with this first temptation. This was much more than just a temptation to eat a good slice of bread when you're on a diet. This is not a temptation to eat bad carbs, all right? It's not what this is. What this is is a temptation to go his own way, to make his own provisions, to go rogue and to satisfy his own power or satisfy his hunger with his own power. And and Jesus points to the word of God and says, no. No, but the devil doesn't give up there. Verse five, the devil then takes him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. 
and said, if you are the son of God, same statement, Jesus, since you're the son of God, listen to what he says, throw yourself down, hurl yourself off. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. All right, this one's tricky. All right, so the devil takes Jesus up in order that he could throw himself off in some showy miracle. Everyone's gonna see Jesus and then getting, it would be a showy miracle, right? It would be in a way that God would have to respond and show off his, his power. In a way, I want you to think about it like this. In a way, this was a temptation to kind of force divine intervention in a showy way. That was the temptation. And here's what I mean by tricky. So Jesus, you know, he quotes scripture in order to push back against temptation number one. Well, here in temptation number two, the enemy quotes scripture. Only he misuses it, misquotes it, misapplies it. And this is so important to see, really important to understand. This is one of the enemy's favorite tactics of all. Um, very rarely does the enemy just tempt us to take this and throw it in the trash can. Take your Bibles, get them out of here. We don't. Very rarely is that his mission. More often, he, he, instead, we take the word of God and we distort it. We take what we want and we leave what we don't. More often, that's the temptation. And, and almost every cult, by the way, that you can think of or watch a Netflix documentary on comes from taking the word of God, tweaking it, distorting it, deleting, subtracting, modifying, whatever you do. This is so similar to what the enemy is doing here. So here in our text, the enemy is, is pointing back to uh, Psalm 91. Here's the tricky part about Psalm 91. This is so subtle. Psalm 91 is about David calling out to God when he trips, when he stumbles, and knowing that God's going to pick him up. Cling to that truth, amen? Here's the thing, though. Here's what the enemy does here. The devil's misleading here comes from him confusing the psalmist's stumbling to Jesus's deliberately hurling himself off of something. Here's what I mean. Um, there was a subtle perversion of scripture here. Because here's the truth. God will catch you when we stumble, when we fall. But that does not give us the invitation to run and hurl ourselves off so that we force him to act on our behalf. You are not God. That's the temptation here. The temptation here is that Jesus would intentionally jump in order to force the Father's hand to intervene. And so what does Jesus do? Well, verse seven, he responds again as it is written. Same deal. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This again is Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is clear here. We must not test God's faithfulness to his word by manufacturing situations in which we try to force our God to act in certain ways. And I wanna just say that again. I think it's important to say this again. We must not test our God's faithfulness by manufacturing situations that try to headlock or force our God to act in certain ways on our behalf. Jesus here trusts the Father's plan 
and he is not going to force the father to act in another way. That's temptation number two. But there's one more, and this one is bold. Verse eight, again, the devil takes, took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, and said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. This is bold, right? Super bold. Um, on the surface, it honestly seems absurd because why on earth would Jesus do that? He's Jesus, he's not gonna do that, Satan. Like, this seems crazy. But I want you to think about what Satan's actually doing in this temptation. If you think about it, all of those kingdoms and all of the glory that Satan reveals to Jesus were already going to be his. He was the king. He is the king. He would rule and reign over all. That was already the plan, church. Here's the thing. This glory, though, was going to come through a cross, He would receive glory, but it would come through the cross, his death, and his resurrection. What is Satan really doing here? Satan's temptation to Jesus here is that, Jesus, you can have all that glory without the cross. Without the cross. Satan is providing Jesus with another plan. All the kingdoms, all the power, all the glory, you can have it. Minus all the suffering, all you got to do is bow down, bend a knee. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, this reminds me of all the ways that Satan regularly tempts us as believers to the same exact thing, that we can have all the success, we can build our own kingdoms and have health, wealth, and whatever we want if you just do things my way. Um, here's the thing, that the devil's price is condemnation and damnation every time. He requires nothing short of selling your own soul and worshiping him, which leads to eternal death and judgment. I read this from an author this week, and I loved it. He says, whatever joy and whatever power that, you, that the enemy can offer will vanish at death. Whatever joy, whatever power, whatever authority that the enemy offers will vanish at death. The ways of this world will vanish when you die. And that's why the gospel is so beautiful and powerful, why we have so much joy, because the power of the gospel does not vanish at death. Its joy is eternal and abundant. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Jesus, he understands and he knows the suffering that is ahead. And Jesus here rejects the devil's offer for a plan B. And he quotes yet another scripture, Deuteronomy again. Church, Jesus knows his Deuteronomy. My goodness, I wish I knew Deuteronomy like this. So I am now in Deuteronomy in my reading plan, and I'm reading it differently because I'm like, man, Jesus used this for battle. Man, he knows Deuteronomy. I wish I knew it as well as he does. But first he says very simply in verse 10, be gone. Be gone, Satan. I like to envision him yelling that, but I'm not going to yell here today. Be gone. Then he says, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It's Deuteronomy 6.13. Jesus says, only God is worthy of worship. Only God is God, and he is unwilling to sell his soul or bend his knee to another, even if it meant bypassing the suffering, even if it meant avoiding the cross. 
avoiding the pain. Jesus' eyes were fixed on the will of the Father, the mission of the cross, and he says, be gone. And the coolest thing is the enemy, what happens? He listens. The devil left him, verse 11. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Listen, this was a testing moment. This is a huge testing moment. Um, Temptation number one, Jesus, will you operate on your own will and plan independent of God's plan? Temptation number one. Jesus, will you force God to act in your plan, throwing yourself off, putting him to the test? Temptation number two. Jesus, will you bypass the suffering? Choose the kingdom minus the cross. Will you bend your knee to another? Temptation number three. This was the test. And again, this was when Jesus would ask at his most vulnerable. I'm not going to feed you for 40 days. Talk about vulnerable. Will you do things your way instead of the Father's way? And if you think about it, um, in so many ways, these temptations are just like, made me think about the first temptations in Genesis. If you think about the garden in Genesis, if you remember, the serpent says, hey, try this food, it's good, temptation of the flesh. Hey, look at that, look at that fruit, it looks good, lust of the eyes, and it's gonna make you wise and put you in charge like God, pride of life. We see lust, flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And let me tell you, there is nothing new under the sun. These are the same temptations we face today, the same temptations Jesus faced. Look, look at that bread. It'd be good, right? Look at these cities and the authority and the glory. It looks good, right? Look, there's another plan. You know better than the Father's plan. The Father's plan, it includes a lot of suffering. You don't want that. So, There's a cross at the end of that plan. You don't want that. So come to my plan, worship me, get all of that without the cross. You know better than the Father. This is the garden 2.0. The garden all over again. But here's the thing. We sang about this already this morning. Christ here is the true and better Adam. Because where Adam takes the fruit and questions the word of God and eats it, Jesus here rejects the fruit, stands on the word of God and says, Satan, be gone. Get out. Jesus is the true and the better Adam. Jesus is the one who did what Adam did not do and what you and I cannot do. He was tested and found perfect, found holy, found righteous. And listen, there are a few few huge points and applications from this. Um, from this text, but I want to be very careful and I want to be very clear here. Um, I'm going to give us two. There are two sides to this. I want to be very careful and clear on them because although both of these applications are important, one takes priority over the other. Okay, so I want to be very careful here. I'll say it like this. There is a primary foundational application and there is a secondary application from this text. Both are important, but one is primary, one is secondary. Let me start with the secondary first. Secondary application first. Um, The secondary application from this text is that you are given a game plan for fighting temptation. 
We see Jesus, boom, 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 fighting temptation with the word of God. I want to remind you of a text, 1 Corinthians. Talk about the hope that this text gives you. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I share this because, hear me, you are not helpless in your battle with temptation. Do not believe that lie. You've been given the power to fight, the strength to fight, called to fight, equipped to fight. And in this text, we see Jesus fighting. We not only see that Christ fought temptation, in this text, we see how Christ fought temptation. He battled it through scripture. He stands on the word of God. He quotes it. He knows it. He does not allow it to be misquoted or misused. misused. Listen, our first application here, secondary application, but our first one is to fight temptation. Know the word of God. Stand on the word of God. Trust the word of God and speak the word of God over yourself and your life. The word is how we fight. It's how we fight. We meet temptation with the word. It's how Jesus fought, and it's, it's a powerful example to follow. And I want to say something that may insult you, and I don't mean to, but if it insults you, I'm okay with it. All right? Listen, if Jesus did not rely on his own power to fight temptation, Jesus, who on earth do you think you are to think that when t- temptation hits you, got this. Who do you think you are? To think that you can stand on your own power. Church, stand on this. It's what Christ did. This is why we're doing so many of these reading plans right now, by the way. Um, I'll plug this. I think it's a great time to plug this. Um, If you haven't joined us already, come on. We're not doing this in some like legalistic way where if you miss a day, we shame you. It's not like that, okay? Join us. We want to know this, sit in this, stand on this. Like maybe you started with us and, and since then you've kind of gone, you, you did day one and two and then forgot and life happened. That's okay. Come back. We're not going to judge you. Like join us, join us. You can go there, join us because Church, the word is how we fight. So that's why we read it. That's why we preach it. That's why we sing it. That's why we pray it. We fight through the word. Fight. This is our fight. All right, that's our secondary application. You may hear that and think, well, that doesn't sound very secondary. That does not sound unimportant. It is not unimportant. Um, it's hugely important. But our, it's only secondary, I'll say it like this, because of how primary our next application is. So the secondary application is like Christ, we fight temptation with the word of God. The primary application from this text is that we look to Christ who met and fought and conquered temptation for you. I want to unpack this for, for, for a moment. Jesus faced temptation and he conquered it, all of it. He lived the life that you could not live. And you know what that means, church? It means that Hebrews 4 is now true. I want to read it. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews gives us the most powerful and primary application of Matthew 4. When you read our text today, when you read Matthew 4, when you read the way Jesus faced temptation, when you read the way Jesus fought it, how he stood strong, listen, according to Hebrews, when we read this, we're able to better hold fast to what we believe. When we read this, we were able to have more confidence as we come before our God. Don't miss this. When you read about the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4, your confidence should grow. Your confidence should grow because in Christ we see he knows what it's like to be hangry, hungry, tired, vulnerable. Jesus knows what that's like. We know that he faces temptation. He he. He faced the temptation to bypass suffering, to avoid it. He faced the temptation to put God to the test for his own purpose and glory. We see that. We, we, he knows what it's like to be tempted to try to take the reins and to do things his own way. He knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to face temptation. Scripture says he faced it all and in that he did not sin. So that now when Christ looks at you as you face trials and as you face temptations, he looks at you with sympathy and compassion. Just let that settle. Like, he is our sympathetic high priest. Because of Matthew 4, we can be more confident in the grace and mercy of our God when we come before him. That we will receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. See, the first implication of our text was to, you know, follow Christ's example as we fight temptation. So important, but listen to me. Before we can fight, we need to understand something. We need to understand the primary implication because not only do we follow Christ's example, no, first we must understand we stand on Christ's completed work. This is how we fight. We come to God through faith in Christ. We are saved because of Christ's work. In other words, Christ conquered temptation and sin so that now in him, through the power of his grace and the power of his mercy, we are able to fight temptation for his glory. A primary um, application is to look to Jesus at what he has done, stand on what he has done, so that now we come in confidence, as Hebrews says, before the throne. Confidence in what he has done because of his righteousness. We look to Christ who has conquered it all so that in him, through him, we now fight sin in victory. This is the primary. Because now, when we understand that, we stand on Christ's work, now, church, we're able to fight temptation. Once we understand what Jesus has done, now we can fight. I, I, I'll say it another way. By the grace of God, we look to Christ, stand in Christ, so that now we fight like him. Christ was tested. He was put to the test. Remember what that means. It means we found out the true quality. He was put to the test, and he was proven to be true. He is who he says he is. 
And this is why I can say with confidence, like look to Jesus, the perfect son of God who came to save, to live a life you could not live, to die the death that you deserved. He came to be raised from the dead, conquer death, hell, and the grave and give you victory. Look to Christ who gives you confidence that you're gonna receive grace and mercy. Look to Christ and in him fight. Fight sin, fight temptation. If you're here today, listen, you may be here today. Um, I wanna call this out. You may be here today and you may believe in Jesus. You may call yourself even a mature believer. And if you're honest, you may be far too comfortable with sin in your life. This morning's a wake up call. It's time to fight. It's time to look to Jesus' example and fight sin and temptation with truth, fight with the word of God. And I wanna end with a scripture and I wanna end with a reminder for all of us today. This comes from 1 Peter 2, 21. And what a way to end this. Listen to this. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. He didn't bypass it. Leaving you an example so that you may follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were, like stray, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Church, look to Christ. Come to Christ. Stand on Christ. Trust Christ and fight like Christ.